everyone. Good morning. Welcome to the Amelia. We are here this morning in the uh, very West Coast-like weather. Wait, no, that's not it. Um, and we let Derek out of his cage and his state. Yes. What do you here think? I am. What do you think? I mean, what time is it? Four o'clock in the five, uh, something like that. Early. Okay. Well, bright and early. Welcome to the Amelia. A um, legendary event. Uh, yes, and we are here uh, for a special event. We This episode of the Carmudgeon Show is brought to you by a Viper Chairs, which we're sitting on. And I think we're going to upgrade the chairs in the, uh, in the studio because these are way more comfortable. So we received some marketing materials, and one of my favorite po- bullet points among those was, we fixed everything that we thought sucked in working in your garage. And I said, well, you have, obviously haven't seen my car yet because that's, that's the, what, the suckiest the part. And I don't know what most. you're going to do about that. <laughs> My lack of talent, the oil slicks on the floor. Uh, speaking of oil slicks on the floor, there's a bunch of alphas over there. I know, I saw them. I see they can, they park them all together to contain the environmental impact. impact. Yeah. Yes, no 164s though. Disappointed but, to see. But a 916. Yes, 916 is even rarer. I figured you wouldn't know what a 916 is other than a Porsche. Because you went straight or for the Porsche. Or a Ducati. As you guys will be very surprised to know, Derek went straight over to the Porsche section. I was um, very good about it. We walked through briefly and made a single pass so we could see all of them at once. Okay. And? There are Porsches over there. And what are you driving home? What are you selling? What are you buying? Uh, I don't know. I haven't decided. I have to see everything. It's a difficult call to make. There were a lot of very cool Mercedes, of course. Yeah. I, I, I don't understand why it is that even though there were great cars of every job, there's an E91 M3 wagon over there. Which someone um, created, which presumably. Someone created. Not BMW. Um, with an automatic. So I, I got to give it one demerit point for otherwise being a 100% cool car. But there was, uh, there's also a Gullwing W201. Mandatory Mercedes content, by the way. 201. First, 126. 126. Sorry. It was a two, badged E260. Oh, the convertible. The convertible, yes. Gullwing. Oh, God. All right. What time in the morning it is? For the record, I have slept one hour. Maybe an hour and a half. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, so there's I a convertible 190E, Baz yes. is a 260E, e. which is confusing, uh, but <laughs> cool nonetheless. And then, yes, the Gullwing C126 and a bunch of other interesting Mercedes Benzes, all sort of 80s tuner cars, which is quite extraordinary. I feel like Florida and this sort of area of the United States, which doesn't have roads that are as curvy as the roads that exist by us, um, favor Mercedes over any other enthusiast brand. I mean, it's got, Mercedes has its own section that's as big as the Porsche section. And then there's sort of like everything else, including the oil leak section, otherwise known as the Alfa Romeo section, um, and sort of everything thrown together, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the grab bag section is particularly entertaining. Anything else you see that you loved? Uh, what did we see do, over do there? Do not talk about the E55 wagon because that's a Mercedes. Right. The Lexus uh, what, GX, was, which it just towed something there. Yes, that was just sitting there. Yeah. Uh, there was a lovely Jaguar XKR, the late car with the body kit and the Detroit wheels, the green one. That's a rare creature, and that's like the ultimate Jaguar from the 2000s, if such a thing exists. It was green with gold wheels. What do you call those wheels? Oyster is the name of the finish. How is that oyster? I've I don't know. Gold Ask oyster. Jaguar. Yeah, sort of biscuit interior and oyster wheels. Yes. Um, Just trying to think if there's anything else we saw. We walked through in the space of, what do you think, seven, eight seven minutes, minutes to see yeah. the whole show? Well, so there's one slight scheduling snafu, I would say, to this whole situation. There's a lot going on this weekend, which is obviously why we're here. So there is The Amelia, which is obviously the show on Sunday, which is tomorrow. Um, but then today there's Radwood, 
which is across the highway over there. There is this, which is Cars and Caffeine, which is another car show. Um, and there's just sort of like, and then there's the broad arrow auctions and obviously all the, there's so much stuff going on, but we're doing this before any of it really ever started. Except for the auctions. Okay. We could talk about auctions the whole time. We, but we got in at like 11 o'clock last night and oh. I, I haven't seen an auction yet, have you? I'll be doing that later today. It's my business to sort of pay attention to what happened. So, you know, I can editorialize if needed, but I think that's not the point of being here today. But. Oh, you're going to have to editorialize after, or do you want to just make all your kinds of predictions right now? Well, a lot record, of stuff is already a lot of theory. stuff is already transacted. So, of course, the, the, there's an event here, which is the auction itself, and or auctions, uh, and then there's the concourse. So it depends on why you're here. If you're here to look at cars and you're not so interested in the transaction part, then that part is sort of immaterial. But we can certainly provide market commentary. Go for it. Uh, my general. <laughs> Here I am prognosticating. General observation is that uh, some stuff's really strong, other stuff's less strong. That's kind of representative of what we see in the market. Well, no, sometimes things are really... That, hold on, like, that, was that was a complete inconsistent. Like, tarot card reader answer. Yes. Some things are good, some things are bad. You're going to have to Would go Would you let bit. me finish? No. Okay. <laughs> well, then let's change topics. No. No. I'm too tired um, I mean, the, the point of all that is to say that the market is, uh, certain parts of it are warm and other parts are not, and it's not just absolutely gangbusters. It's a good time to be buying because you can be discerning, but by the same token, if you have something really extraordinary as a seller, then you'll probably do okay, but it's not a guaranteed home run like it was two years ago. Okay. I'm what are the, what about are the market. No, 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 I'm curious, because you mentioned yesterday that like all of a sudden 2.516 Evo 2s are really hot. Here we are talking about Saco Mercedes again. I'm uh, happy to do it. Okay, well, you brought it up. Yeah, um, so the I have noticed, I mean, Mercedes has always been in the sort of shadow for the most part, with the exception of a few really collectible cars uh, in the enthusiast space uh, of, like, really heavy-duty collectors. You know, there'll be the pre-war stuff, and then there'll be the sports cars from the 50s and, and racing cars from the 50s, and then there's sort of a gap of collectability. And as the sort of Radwood phenomenon emerges and some of the really special, like, pre-merger AMG stuff starts to get valuable, then the market is shifting. And then you look at the Mercedes sort of hottest... I think most sporting Mercedes ever made, uh, which is the, the Evo 2 190 Cosworth, uh, there's definitely a sort of growing interest in some of the mainstream collectors who would have historically never considered a Mercedes from anything other than you know the 1950s or before that uh, as a genuinely collectible car. There's a lot of guys out there who are like, I need an Evo 2 Cosworth, and I'm enjoying sort of seeing all these guys come to the party to some extent, the party to which you and I have already been attendees because they're... You know, such good cars for such Not that reasonable we have Evo money. 2s. But no, yeah. no, no, of course. We have Evo negative 1, I guess. Neg it is. Negative 2. Yeah, negative 2. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's, uh, that's an interesting point because the, the conventional wisdom was always uh, the, uh, no four-door Mercedes will ever be collectible. Or four-door anything for the most part. Was that just anything? I, guess, I think I guess so. It, yeah. I guess it kind of was. I mean, it was always the, the Mercedes thing that I'd heard more than anything else, but I guess, you mm -hmm. know. You're right. Sports cars always um, got the answer. So, but you think that the two five sixteen Evo two is more sporting than a three hundred SL Gullwing? Uh, no. Okay. So you so you've also been sleep deprived. <laughs> I said one of the most sporting Mercedes ever made. Uh, Jake, can we have a tie break on that? I think most sporting Mercedes ever made. I think. I think Jake's not paying attention. Jake also got no sleep. It is also four o'clock in the morning for him. Um, okay. Radwood, you, you brought up Radwood. Yes. Um, Radwood is an interesting phenomenon here. There's a lot of cars from, we walked through just as the cars were just starting to come in. Um, and we I probably have seen 20% of it. 
I don't know. We're going to find out when we walk over afterwards. We'll, we'll do another show um, next week. We'll record a sort of after the Amelia weekend show um, so we can really do the recap. But um, I feel like there were very few Florida plates on cars. And it's something we're not used to when living in California is our, our shows are local, right? Well, California extends for three hours in every direction from where we live. So does Florida. No, we're right on the border of uh, okay. the, if you're in the southerly yes. Carolina state. Florida's long is all I was saying. But yeah, um, but, uh, people have definitely traveled to be here. There was a, there's a Callaway ZR1 uh, with Texas plates on it. He didn't drive it smartly because he would have to clean it. Um, but uh, cars from plates all over. There's a hell of a Buick display. <laughs> yes, a lot of Riatas. Four Riatas and, and two Rivieras. And Toronado also. And Toronado also. Yeah, so the sort of Radwood Buick yeah. era was really well represented. I think maybe better represented than we've than I've ever seen at a Radwood before. I don't... I, I mean, to speak to the uh, out-of-state thing also, would you like to be doing car things in New York or Connecticut right now? No, that's well, true. <laughs> everybody's here yeah, then. That's true, but although the weather is... Uh, We'll see how better well it than New York or Connecticut, and better it's than actually California right now. I think yes. all of California is being rained on um, yes. terribly. Um, so this is your first Amelia week. It is my first Amelia, first um, Amelia hours, in fact, since we got in last night. Yeah. What is your first impression other than humidity? Uh, compactness. It's really nice. I mean, if you t- if you go to, of course, the other premier United States car event, it would be uh, Car Week in Monterey, and there is such a sort of logistical disaster of trying to get from here to there and dealing with traffic and there's so many events that you keep tr- can't keep track of them all uh, you don't have that issue here it's really compact it's easy to walk to pretty much everything uh, once you're is, here once you're here yeah correct getting here is a procedure yeah. but that's true for, I think for in, the, in the morning for most people i mean if you stay at the ritz which is if you i don't know which way the camera's angled right literally right there you can walk down to all the events which is really nice but i think most people wind up shuttling in yes um but once you're here you're here and you're in the oh. middle of there's, I mean, there's everything. There's a Lucid over there. We're going to be talking a little bit uh, in a little bit about a Chrysler concept. That's your Chrysler Halcyon. Um, with a guest, as I understand guest, it. I believe Ralph Shields is joining us. Yes. Which is, you know, we're going to have to put that one on the board. Like, to this day, like, whatever. Yeah, we have to explain and, who he is. Oh, he's like the guy who's designed all of the really cool Chrysler stuff. Is he here? Can we make fun of him yet? No. Um, Good. You can speak freely, <laughs> except for the whole part about except, being except, on the mic. It's on the PA. And like, if you guys are listening at home, we can hear ourselves. And this means that there are lots of people over there in that, like, flotilla of cars who we can't insult. Although it's very you, restrictive. Yeah, you've already made fun of one or two cars. 216, which is confusing. That guy's going to walk right up on stage here and be like, it's because I named it to be post-94. Yeah, but 260E already existed. It was a different car. It was, it was a, a 124. 124. Yeah. Yes. But what was he going to do? 190E 2.6 Cabriolet? Yes. Obviously. <laughs> I have no retort for that. It's too early in the morning. These chairs are very comfortable. Yes. Um, we totally, all right, we are totally grabbing these chairs for the, for the curmudgeon show. The other nice thing is they're not restrictive, so I can, I can move, except I, you're supposed to be there. Like, I'm used to That's right. We don't usually across. look at each other from move? next to each other. <laughs> I mean, yes, I can move if you, everybody wants to see the back of my head. I mean, everybody's going to be listening anyway, not watching on YouTube, I assume. Um, okay, so what? Uh, so what's up next for you? You're going to go to spend the day at the auctions. Yes, I would like to watch some auctions. I would like to see the rest of Radwood mm-hmm. and see what Radwood is like. You know, this besides having gone to Radwood SoCal, I've never actually been to a Radwood outside of California. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see how the demographic shifts of the region are represented at Radwood. We've already seen that a little bit with the Buick. 
we also sort of glossed over the centerpiece, which was most elevated, which is the, the 1998 Porsche GT1 uh, in Mobile One livery. Uh, I don't know if it's that the car that won Le Mans in 98, probably not, but those are the cars that ran both ALMS and in continental Europe. So that was very cool to see in person. Uh, I don't know, what else did you see over there that was a particular highlight? It was too early. Too early to see. Anything. I mean, we literally went over there at 7 o'clock, which is 4 a.m. our time. Yeah. So I don't... Uh, I probably took pictures. We can yeah. we can look at this. This is the professional version of the podcast. This is podcast what we always we do. Look at pictures. Well, we normally do this off camera and then, you know, fake it. Um, there was oh, there was the Or Quattro. Oh yes, and the, not the just any Or Quattro. Yeah, the yeah. Sport Quattro, and the nineteen eighty. Oh. Sorry, this is one of my favorite motorsport stories of all time. It's not the Audi versus Lancia thing, which I quite enjoy, but it's actually Audi's uh, introduction of Quattro to road racing. So Audi initially did Quattro for rally, of course, and that started in, the car was introduced in 1980. Uh, but then they started doing it for circuit racing in the United States in 1988. And this was in response to the, uh, the unintended acceleration fiasco, the 60 minutes thing. And they decided they wanted to try and clean up their image for the United States market. So they decided to go racing here. And so they brought, you know, Walter Roll and Hans Stuck and Hurley Haywood and they ran three cars in Trans Am in 1988. And, you know, Trans Am is usually populated by people in Corvettes and Mustangs and Cougars and Nissan Z cars. And so Audi shows up with a gigantic sedan, which was the Audi 200 with a 2.2 liter turbocharged engine against all these guys with rear wheel drive cars with big displacement V8s and V6s. And they show up and everyone's like, what are you doing here with that gigantic car with 2.2 liters? You're absolutely going to get just clobbered. Uh, but as it turns out, the power of Quattro, the unfair advantage, which it really was, and that's why it was outlawed at the end of the season, uh, but not before Audi just absolutely cleaned everyone's clock, and then it was to the point that partway through the season, uh, they decided to handicap them with smaller tires and give them ballast and intake restrictors to reduce power, and Audi still just absolutely annihilated everyone. So they only ran one year in Trans Am, and then they got basically kicked upstairs because it was outlawed and they ran these cars. So there's one of those cars. It's the 89 car that then ran subsequently in uh, IMSA uh, GTO class. Uh, and then they were pretty effective too, despite it kind of missing a part of the season. So I was really cool to see that in person. I've always wanted to see one of those cars in person. Uh, and then of course uh, you get the magical five cylinder noises and fireballs out the exhaust. Really super cool car. It was exactly what your experience with your Audi 200. Yeah, fireballs and explosions and smoke and, <laughs> and large repair and bills. Large repair bills. But it's it's kind of ironic that Audi had such an incredible performance in IMSA with that car because we don't think of Audi in terms of racing, especially here in the U.S. I feel mm -hmm. forgetting, of course, that Quattro was beyond um, just completely changed the face of rally racing mm -hmm. but also the v8 yes in in dtm yes yeah, so that was the very next year so then in in 89 they ran in imza and sort of were then outlawed again because everyone was concluding that four-wheel drive was just too unfair of an advantage even if you were running a big sedan with a small engine uh, admittedly with a gigantic turbocharger. Uh, so then for 1990 and 91, they took Hans Stuck and Audi's motorsport department basically back to Germany and won DTM in 90 and 91, mm -hmm. if I remember, which really annoyed Mercedes because they had been trying to win DTM since they appeared with the Cosworth in 85 or 6. Mm -hmm. uh, well, factory backing later, but yeah. Yes, factory backing, I think, didn't start until the end of 87. 
Uh, and so Mercedes was super annoyed that Audi turned up because at that point it would have been the sort of M3 versus 190 thing for several years. And Audi comes in, first year, wins two, two in a row, and Mercedes finally got their long-awaited DTM win in 92. Remembering, of course. After that, Audi left. Right. And remembering, of course, that they wound up having to remove the W201 from the rally program to begin with because of Audi. They finally thought, ah, we'll get this thing to win something, and then Audi comes in. But we do not think of Audi as a racing company today. I mean, I guess we probably should. Well, they've won should. Le Mans a few times. I was going to say, <laughs> we probably should with Le Mans. But it does, it's the one car, car company that doesn't seem to trickle down their racing wins to their street product. From, from a journalistic perspective, I, there's nothing I see... Philosophically. Philosophically that, you know, that sort of race on Sunday, sell on Monday, there's usually some sort of lineage or traceability. Yeah, that was true of the Ur Quattro, for sure, in the 1980s, all the way through the 1980s. But, yeah, since then, their motorsport products have not had... A, and that's because they ran in prototype class because mm -hmm. they wanted to contest for outright... Not contest, they wanted to win right. outright, which I think they are probably the second winningest at Le Mans car manufacturer after... Uh, Porsche? Porsche. Ferrari might be in there, too. Those are right. the top three. Porsche, Ferrari, and uh, Audi. I, I bet if you asked 50 people on the street, what are the top three, none of them would say Audi. Mm. Um, Even though is, it was so recent. Exactly. I, mean, it's, I, th I think that's perhaps a missed opportunity, or maybe it's a function of Audi coming into any sport, dominating it so completely and comprehensively that... that Before uh, diesel-gating their way out, it should be added. Listen, uh, that's coming up on the Piekisode. We can't, we can't talk about that. Uh, you are publicly acknowledging the existence of the Piekisode now? Well, I think we've been saying for some, quite some time that the Piekisode <laughs> For years. Happening. Yeah, no, somebody just made a comment in, uh, on, uh, on YouTube about the Piekisode coming, and I was like, oops. We've been slowly leaking this out on Carmagin for a while, talking about... Do you want to contextualize at all what Piekisode means? So this, we've been talking forever about doing a Carmagin show podcast on the life and successes of Dr. Ferdinand Piek. Mm -hmm. um, who was the chairman of basically Volkswagen and the driving force behind every, I would say, every innovation of the Volkswagen Group, including Audi and uh, back to the early Late 1970s? 70s, mid 70s, yeah. Possibly even earlier than that. Um, and part of the reason that we've hesitated for this, it's got to be two years now. Um, I think longer. It could be longer. Is for two reasons. Num number one, the amount of research you have to do on this on this man is enormous because his his successes were at Porsche, at Audi, at Volkswagen, at Bugatti, at Bentley, uh, and at Mercedes. There's a Mercedes tie-in that most people don't realize. Um, and just doing the research on the cars and the technology that he pioneered that in and of itself is months of research. And um, as I'm sure everyone here knows, we don't do that. <laughs> we do show. maybe minutes if research if or if seconds. None at all. Um, Jake does all the work afterwards by like you know making us seem funny. Um, but uh, so that that's been a, a roadblock for for quite a number of years, and it just it dawned on me not too long ago that this is too big of a concept to just do a Carmudgeon show on. No offense to Carmudgeon show and, and the viewers, but I'd love to be able to tell this story in a, in a more visual form. So the, we sort of made the decision, um, Anthony and I made the decision to just turn this into an icons. Um, so we're currently working on, if anyone has a Veyron, <laughs> they, they want to loan me. To, I swear I won't do too many donuts in it. But um, we're getting a collection of amazing PH achievements together yes. as sort of visual representation of what this man accomplished. Um, and of course, you know, the, we have to talk about Dieselgate and the sort of falling of Volkswagen um, yes. at, the, at the very end of his career. But um, I think, you know, 
one of the most defining humans of automobiledom ever. Yeah, I mean, I'll make the point in the, uh, the script for sure that we had, we definitely had the sort of Gottlieb Daimler era of cars that uh, clearly transitioned into the Henry Ford era of cars. Yes. And not not much really changed from that point on, I would argue, until the likes of Suichiro Honda and Toyota. Um, so Honda and Toyota sort of revolutionized Henry Ford's processes and in allowing uh, car companies to be efficient at mass production. Uh, and the next titan of the industry was definitely a PS. Um, far more so than, and I, I don't want to get struck by lightning here, but uh, you have the Ferruccio Lamborghinis and the Ettore Bugattis and uh, the Enzo Ferraris of the world who made a huge impact. And I look on that field and the first thing we all look at is a Ferrari. But in terms of the impact to the automotive industry as a as, a, as an industry, those are very low volume, yes. small production cars for, for yeah. very lucky few. Um, and so if you were to define the characteristics that sort of each era of automobiledom possesses, you know, the original phase as characterized by Gottlieb Daimler would be the invention of the car, and yep. then the next would be sort of mass production. And then if you're going to turn to specifically, I think especially uh, Toyota, mm -hmm. uh, the sort of further Kazan. refinement of, of the manufacturing process, how would you do characterize in a single or small phrase uh, Ferdinand Piech in that crowd? Uh, there are two ways to do it, because I think he had two very big strategies. One was Audi's tagline, which is Vorsprung durch Technik, which is getting ahead via technology. So he was the Often ultimate... Often translated in English as progress through technology, I think is the tagline in English, the yeah, that equivalent. It, uh, Piesch was very much a product person and believed that the product would speak for itself and the cream would rise to the top. So if you just made the best stuff... You didn't have to worry about all, all this other stuff like maybe passing emissions tests. <laughs> that's <laughs> low perhaps blow. A little bit, perhaps a little bit of a low blow. Uh, by the way, Volkswagen was definitely not the only company that's, uh, was it just Cummins that was just sued billions of dollars by yes. the, uh, for, for similar violations. But um, so that was part of his, his fundamental belief was that at the end of the day, the, the, the product is at the core. The second part of that was brand management. Um, by combining so many different brands under one umbrella, and that is, as we as we said, Volkswagen, Audi, Porsche, Bentley, Bugatti, Seat, Skoda. Who did I forget? Uh, ten other ones. I can't I can't keep track of them all. Ducati. Um, but Ducati eventually also. But they there are economies of scale that you can have. God, this sounds like such boring economic speech. But there are economies of scale. Like for example, one of the one of the examples that keeps coming up is how many different mirror adjustment motors yes. that Volkswagen had within its group. Well, it doesn't really matter what is adjusting the mirror of your Golf's, you know, your Golf's power windows you, or mirrors you don't care so long as it's just unobtrusive. And by designing them, unlike a lot of other car companies did for the, for the cheapest cost, for the cheapest product, he would design each component for the best and then let that trickle down. Because by designing a very expensive, let's say, mirror motor, which is a difficult word to say, to say mirror motor 200 times. Rural juror. Rural juror. Um, you could save enough money on it that it would be cost effective in a Through golf, scale. for example, but still be appropriate for a Bugatti Chiron. Yes. Um, and so if you start looking at the component sets used throughout the Volkswagen group, they were all similar. And that was how, he, for example, Mark IV Golf um, and Jetta 
you know, when, when Piech inherited Volkswagen, they were literally three months from bankruptcy. Um, and he turned the company around, and one of his first... This is like 1993. 93. One of his first goals was uh, to announce that the, the next generation of golf would be better than a Mercedes. And everyone laughed at the man, and uh, rightfully so. I mean, I'm a Volkswagen lover, but let's, you know, you can't compare an 80s or 90s VW to an 80s or 90s Volkswagen. They're 20 years apart. Um, that stopped right then and there because all of the componentry, not all of the componentry, but a lot of the componentry for something as simple like golf came from something like an Audi and it was good enough to be used in something like a Bentley. Mm-hmm. Um, and he didn't, uh, he didn't want to save costs by making them all cheap. He wanted to save costs by, by making, making a lot expensive. of the same thing yeah. so that and it making became it cheap because there were so many of them. Yeah. The brand um, management strategy, I think, is also an interesting contrast to the brand management strategy that we see in other manufacturers. You know, certainly General Motors, I think, struggled with identity and all of its various brands over the years. Certainly we have struggled with it publicly about figuring out what the role of Oldsmobile versus Buick is. For example, I mean, but the bigger if, the bigger issue there is you have. I mean, we use the the Cadillac Cimarron as a as a perfect example of what not to do, and that was just the most glaring example. You had a Chevy Cavalier, which was a very very inexpensive mass consumer product with very old technology engines, with you know very very cost cut everything, and Cadillac put their badge on it. And this was a point where Cadillac was still trying to to sell itself and position itself as a standard of the world and really making great cars, despite the fact that it hadn't been for 40 years. Um, but they, they went the opposite direction and said, hi, here we go. This is, this is a Cadillac Cimarron with the same four-cylinder that you, or the same yeah. V6 that you can get in the, in the um, Cavalier. bottom of the barrel Cavalier, yes. where uh, you could get a Volkswagen Phaeton, which was sort of laughed off the showroom floors initially as a 65,000-pound well, junk. And always. Right. <laughs> Yeah, but at the end of the day, it you know what, it, what the Phaeton was kind of a failure in the marketplace, but it yes. also begat the entire Bentley Continental brand. Yes. Um, so it was too good for a Volkswagen, but it was perfectly fine for a Bentley. Put wood and leather and charge three times the price for it, and people were willing to pay for it. And it was a genius move. Um, yes. Should have probably never been sold as a Volkswagen. That's but, right, and that was a personal vanity project to which Piaf was sometimes... Um, I don't know, prone to doing that occasionally. No. Um, however, I will say that, gener- like, as exemplified by the, the Bentley example, they would all, always use the stuff that they engineered, even though it wouldn't necessarily end up in the vehicle they originally intended it for. You know, so if the Phaeton was supposed to sort of pioneer all that, and it itself was a failure, that stuff was still used elsewhere for decades in other products. So. You know, it was amortized appropriately. Right. And I think it's even even projects like the Veyron, which was a financial disaster, right? No, I mean, Vol- I don't believe Volkswagen's ever given numbers. marketing investment. I would agree the same, right? I mean, I think Volkswagen's yeah. never publicly talked about it, but the general consensus is that Volkswagen lost millions on every Veyron ever produced, which is kind of a hard to th- thing to comprehend when the car was a million dollars to begin with. And they with. made 450 right. of them. <laughs> um, so they lost quite a lot of money, but what is the marketing uh, benefit to the Volkswagen group as a whole? Hey, I drive the GTI, it's from the same company that made- With the same Bugatti. key. With the same key. <laughs> And, and the, the Veyron key does look exactly mirror, like the, and the Yeah, the it's the motor. same key, and the same yes. mirror motor probably as a Golf. Yes. Um, so, you know, probably sold quite a few GTIs in 
during that same period. Lupos. But look, during that, I mean, the, the, this is why this is worthy of a whole episode because during that same period uh, that VW was developing the, the Phaeton, the uh, Phaeton and the Veyron, they were also developing the XL1 mm-hmm. and the Lupo 3 liter. Mm-hmm. Lupo 3 liter was the first ever car, first car ever produced to use fewer than three liters of fuel per hundred kilometers. The XL1 was the first and only car to ever use less than one. Non-hybrid. It's a hybrid. Oh, so then what about the, isn't there, aren't there some like uh, plug-in hybrids now that sort of achieve similar efficiency? I mean, this is the, the plug-in hybrid game. This is why plug-in hybrids exist, because you get a 30-mile head start or a 15-mile head start of no emissions. And so under European standards, your, your average emissions, uh, I shouldn't say it's just Europe. I mean, VW, uh, Chevrolet claimed that the Bolt got 260 miles per gallon. The Volt got 37, but the Bolt could also do 30 or 40 miles on electric power alone, uh, and so amortized over the course of a, of a year, the average person would use a gallon of gas every 260 miles they drove. Okay, does the car get 260 miles per gallon? Kinda, kinda not. Mostly not. Mostly not, but hey, you know, it does. Um, so that's, uh, that's been a hell of a lot of fun starting to really dig into the research on this. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but the brand management strategy, I think, was clear. You know, it was clear that Audi occupied a particular role and Volkswagen occupied a particular role in Bugatti, Bentley. You know, they're not stepping on each other's toes in terms of price point. Yes, there's a few exceptions. So let's talk about Phaeton and also Seat and Skoda in the European market. There, yeah. And there was also, um, I think Touareg was also a miss. uh, Too nice a car. It was too nice of a car. I think most people forget how nice Touareg was. Yes. Um, but Touareg was a joint venture, effectively, between Volkswagen and Porsche, which were not the same company at the time. They were by the halfway through production. Um, but uh, the Touareg was a much nicer car than the Cayenne was, not in terms of performance, but in terms of luxury and interior quality. And you see them today, and it's really breathtaking. Yeah, wow. especially compared to the thing that sort of in the market replaced it, which is the Atlas, which is sort of a more Volkswagen consistent, at least in the eyes of an American uh, piece of equipment. Yeah, this was a this was Volkswagen finally trying to succeed in the U.S. I mean, we, mm-hmm. you know, look, you and I are both VW fans, but Volkswagen's an incredibly small niche brand that hasn't been able to do even what Subaru has been able to do, which is to, you know, to pull off massive appeal. And part of that was it was always believed to be because Volkswagen didn't make products specifically tailored for the U.S. market the way Toyota did, where the Camry that sold here is designed and built uh, specifically for the American market. Same thing with Subaru. Most other Japanese yep. companies have now U.S. facilities where they make. And VW tried that now with uh, the current Passat, or the outgoing mm-hmm. Passat, and the you know and and uh, the Atlas. And I'm not sure it worked. I'm not sure that Volkswagen customers want something tailored for the U.S. market. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure who's a Volkswagen customer anymore at this point to begin with. You and me both. But there is an ID Buzz over there and an ID7, and oh, they're yes. both really cool looking. Yeah. Um, I yeah, wish we could have inserts for this. I can, I'm looking behind us, and I have a, on have the a one Rivian. camera, I have a Rivian behind us. Um, I find it so interesting to see the car manufacturers who have showed up here. This is, it's quite interesting. So you have a, we have a Chrysler concept that we saw, and there's a big Lucid display and a big Rivian display, mm-hmm. and Volkswagen has chosen to bring the ID cars out, mm-hmm. and I believe nothing else, mm-hmm. which means so far everything we've seen is electric. Oh, yeah. They're all EVs. Mm-hmm. A there's, sign of the future, we think. However, there's been a, quite a bit of retrenching lately in the last few months, 
uh, in the industry on that? I'm really curious about that. I'm, everyone seems to think, oh, you know, the EV market is kind of dying and moving away. Uh, everyone's going to go back to PHEVs, uh, plug-in hybrids. Yeah. I'm very confused by this. I don't think that's... Yeah, the regulatory like environment suggests that it's sort of mandatory, but then I saw the federal government was potentially changing its philosophy on that and sort of taking a step back from that. You've seen, you know... Hertz selling a bunch of its EVs because consumers find it problematic to interact with those things, which, you know, having rented EVs, I do agree with because they say you have to return it with, I don't know, 70% state of charge. And if you're renting a car for a a day-long business trip, where are you going to find time to charge the car? And, you know, people who are unfamiliar with the infrastructure find that problematic too. And then, of course, I think Mercedes recently announced that they were taking a step back from a full EV approach and... Yeah, their stock rallied as a result of that. So it tells you what consumers think about that. Well, let's also not forget that Mercedes' particular foray into EVs has not exactly been fruitful from a product perspective. Well, yes, they violated the PIEC rule, which is to sort of keep the North Star being the product yeah. itself. I mean, yeah, I was going to say they violated the Mercedes rule, which is engineered like no other. Although I would say the it is engineered like many is no worse than than all of them. So it's engineered like no other, but like EQS is yeah tuned like no other suspension since uh, 1979 Coupe de Ville. Um, hmm. But uh, yeah, I, I, plug-in hybrids are pl- problematic because they, they sc- score one way on governmental tests, but no one charges them. And if you don't charge them, you're not going to be experiencing the environmental quote unquote benefits that they're touting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like in Europe, the only reason everyone's buying plug-in hybrids is because they're seriously tax incentivized. Um, otherwise, I mean, would you buy a plug-in hybrid? No, I wouldn't buy most any modern car, though. That's, you had to buy one right now. One modern car? Yeah. And it can't say Porsche on it. <laughs> An E63 wagon? Leave it to you to come up with something cool and wasteful. <laughs> <laughs> That's my specialty, cool and wasteful, turning, uh, turning money into heat and noise. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, well, there's, what's your answer? I don't know. A Veloster N, which is out of production now. So not available. A BRZ. I'd have a BRZ. Go. Okay. From, it's sort of one of the very few really charismatic, uh, modern, naturally aspirated internal combustion cars that is affordable. Counterpoint uh, to me, a an enthusiast car. There's so much about sort of texture, and I would really miss the old car texture in a sports car. And so my temptation with a modern car is just to choose something that modern technology allows that was never possible in the past. And I think that's why you go for the 600 horsepower wagon because there's no historical sort of equivalent that fulfills mm-hmm. that same mission. And that's why instead of choosing a sports car, uh, I choose some sort of I don't know esoteric choice that didn't exist in the old days. Then you're taking advantage of mo- what modernity can do. That Oh, see, then I'm just going for a lucid air sapphire. Okay. You know, a car that can do 0 to 60 in 1.8 seconds at a stoplight. Yeah, see, that's something that an old um, car can't yeah. do. But is that, I mean, if that's a mission that you enjoy fulfilling? I think, I think it's just so far, I, I, same thing, I agree with you, so far removed from the old stuff. I mean, I love, I love something that's sort of smoke spewing and terrible mm-hmm. for me and the environment. Um, but if I'm going to go the other way, I'm going to go the other way and have something that just couldn't have existed 20 years ago or 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, From a dynamic standpoint. Right. Uh, and speed, yeah. I'm the, when I heard dynamic, I thought you were talking handling. But yeah, speed and handling. Yeah. Um, that's kind of the new frontier with 
Uh, did you see the BYD car that uh, debuted last no last year? The U9. Um, it's a 1,300 horsepower four motor supercar for $233,000. Will not be sold in the U.S. or I don't believe it's planned on being sold in the U.S. But the idea is sort of Ferrari-like performance, 2.3 second claimed, zero to 100 kph. Um, you know, Ferrari's the hypercar performance for sort of entry-level Ferrari money. Is that a value proposition that differs meaningfully from the existing EVs that we have here? A little Feels bit. similar. A uh, little bit. What I mean, the form factor? It's a, it's a supercar form factor. Got so it. Okay. It's, be- yes. it's beautiful. So um, that is potentially but, new Tesla Roadster neighborhood. Yeah. I mean, my point, I, I did one interview on it. My point was, hey, listen, EVs have commoditized speed and acceleration to the point where for that for 233000 bucks or nearest makes no difference, you can buy a Sapphire. Um, which will seat five people and hold everything they own plus you know, all of their family members um, and do and be even quicker and more comfortable. Um, so this is this is the new world, right? I mean, we just Elon so the value G- that it adds is some kind of sort of aesthetic and special visual yeah, for, impact. Well, four wheel handling, right? I mean, that was their the press release kind of went on about if it lost a tire, you could stop very safely in a straight line. Um, because it has independent motor control, so it can vector even with a missing tire. I'm not sure that's really important to supercar buyers. I mean, sounds like some Citroen marketing. I mean, it sounds like rational marketing for a car that's not rational. Mm-hmm. I kind of feel like supercars are not rational. Uh, the um, NSX approach. How'd that work out for Acura, huh? I don't know. Everybody, you know, I've talked to a lot of people who like them. I know you always comment on your distaste for that car, but then there's always a lot of people who defend the car. And this is modern? You're talking modern? modern one, yes. Look, it is certainly not without its virtues, right? That V6 has its has a personality. Um, it's, it's, an inter- it's a pretty shape from a lot of, from a lot of uh, angles. I just didn't think it was going to be successful in the market, right? I mean, the, my point in being harsh on that car was it didn't appeal to the people who it was supposed to appeal to, which is the buyers of those cars, which I think we're looking for something different. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, I was right. I mean, does that mean it's not a bad car? Or does that mean it's not a good car or a good match for anyone? No. Somebody's going to love it. There's somebody's always going to... People love Pintos, right? Which was objectively not a great car in the market. But it is better than walking. The NSX or the Pinto? The Pinto. <laughs> Yeah, because you don't get like you don't explode into into flames when you're walking. Um, yeah, that's a. It's. I'm very curious to see how something like that BYD um, Yangwang U9 is going to do. I just very curious to see if that will appeal to traditional supercar buyers. Um, well, we shall see. I mean, a lot of the appeal of that type of car is prestige and also sort of art. And the storied marks, you know, have just a huge advantage. McLaren obviously has a motorsports tie-up, although I feel like their streetcar heritage is a little bit thin, especially compared to someone like, you know, whoever, choose whoever you want. I mean, Pagani built something quite right. impactful in a relatively short period of time. So Right, but even Pininfarina suffered with the Batista. Right? Yes, I mean, they, not they a well-enough-known name. We have special guests coming in. I see one Ralph Gilles. Hi. Are we, uh, I'm, did I get a text? Okay, so we have, all right, hold on. Hello. Uh, you can, there, hi. Hi, Hi, nice to meet you. Hi, Jason. Hi, nice to meet you. Hi, good to see you. So, come on in. This is, all right, so we've had, Ralph, we've had, Chris, we've had really cool guests on before, but you outrank all of them. <laughs> so now I think we're gonna have to actually behave. Can we see? 
No, I'm good standing. I, you're East Coast based, so this is not the middle of the night for you, as my understanding. No, it's not. Okay. No, we're in Michigan. That's not fair. That's not fair. Um, so you guys brought out something amazingly gorgeous, huh? The Chrysler Halcyon concept. Mm -hmm. Yeah, super excited about mm -hmm. it. Tell me, tell me, tell us, tell them. Tell well, I, I think what's amazing about it is, you know, for the last couple of years, we have been on this journey to transform and revitalize the Chrysler brand. And when Ralph and I first started conceiving what harmony and motion really means from, from both an ethos and how you bring that to life through a product, we wanted it to be led by really beautiful and exciting design and thoughtfully integrated technology that is easier to use, that provides calm within the chaotic world that we all live in and it's, it's purposeful rather than a science project. <laughs> and that is really what resulted in the journey that is now the Chrysler Halcyon concept. And when you look at it, it's something that looks like it could be manufactured and produced and sold today. And, and that was intentional. It's on the Stella Large platform. The, the design theme is very accessible, beautiful, aspirational and it incorporates all of the Stellantis advanced technology Stella Brain, Smart Cockpit, and AutoDrive that we are getting ready to produce and bring to market today. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. And so, Ralph, you were lead design yeah. on the car. What were your inspirations? Well, I, I led a wonderful team. We have a, also a newly minted um, head of design, or she couldn't be here, but her name is Irina Zavatsky. Uh, and it's great to have an all-woman team, honestly. So between her and, and Chris, uh, they really discussed the harmony and motion idea a lot. And how do, we, how do we make a comeback of the American sedan? I mean, 20 years ago, plus a couple of months, we launched a 300 in Detroit. And that couldn't be the, it's almost a polar opposite of what this is. You know, that was a, a bruiser, big American bruiser. Uh, with German undertones. <laughs> uh, this is very different. This is something aspirational, beautiful. Um, it has the, this, let's say, the, the aspiration of a supercar, but it's not trying to be that. You know, it will have incredible performance, but it's really about the people first. So you notice the cabin overtakes the design, right? So you're celebrating the people. You don't have an engine anymore, so we're taking that windshield as far forward as we can. And that's kind of pulling this vista to the customer. When you sit in the vehicle, you feel like, whoa, it's almost like being in a in a, uh, an air, a Cessna or something. You know? You're about to enjoy an adventure, and that's how we want the customer to feel. And then the rest of it's reductive design. So less is more. I mean, uh, for all that's going on out there in the design world, we didn't want any of that. So we wanted the car to be easy on the eyes, to age well. Uh, and the interior is the same way. We actually reduced the amount of luxury things that we put in there. So there's really only two tones in the whole interior, uh, a lot less materials. And then the screen that's there actually folds away, the steering wheel folds away. So this whole um, serene, cockpit, this cocoon of serenity uh, is right there at a finger's touch. So you're not, so I, basically I'm not the only person who just wants to be cocooned away from everyone. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's the ultimate luxury, right? Yeah, it came out in the research. We actually talked to customers and especially um, women in general. They, it's, it's, it can be confronting. If you ever watch a woman drive a car sometimes, they're leaning up on the wheel. There's this kind of anxiety and why should it be that way? And I think as designers, as engineers, as marketeers, we can actually re rethink the experience. And the car can drive itself. The car can almost take all of it away from you and just let you enjoy life. Yeah, I, I think Ralph raises a really good point. First of all, the, the, the car needs to look stunningly beautiful, and it does, because that's what captures the, the heart and the mind of, of the buyer. 
Um, but then, you know, there are so many cars out there right now that have integrated technology for technology's sake, and it's not easy to use, it's not intuitive, and so when we were designing our smart cockpit technology, we really led with user experience first. And how do we make it intuitive, um, controlled by voice command or biometrics that over time learns preferences and actually personalizes the system to the driver, but that it's super easy and seamless to use. I think that's great. I mean, I think if the one is there's one theme in in the automotive industry, it's that all of these additive luxuries are actually taking away from the luxury experience. Because right. there's no less, nothing less luxurious than being completely confused by your car. You're stressed because you can't <laughs> figure out what what do I press? <laughs> How do I make this work? How do I open? And then the... <laughs> and you're cursing and thanking AEB for, for slamming on the brakes while you're trying to find a seat switch somewhere. No, I think I think the the future of the automobile is very much less about additive complexity and more about moving 10 years ago 20 years ago we were all talking about time being the biggest luxury give me my time back right Right. and I think now we're saying give me my time and my peace and quiet back Um, as the world never (laughs) never stops ringing yeah take that phone and turn it upside down we have the you know the industry has a habit of hiding in the future in plain sight right and this vehicle is not just for uh, for the Chrysler brand it's actually a, a Stellantis cauldron of tech I mean a lot of what we're working on as a company Stella Brain you've heard of Stella Brain it's real. I mean, we're, we have a, we've hired a, a ton of coders, a bunch of UX teams are trying to really get the best of the best. We're a bit late to the party, let's be honest, in, in terms of central processing in a car. But once you have that, it opens up an incredible amount of opportunities. And, and the Halcyon celebrates exactly that. Is how do you, we could have gone the other way. You could have turned the thing into an Airbus <laughs> cockpit, but we actually went the other way with the tech and said, how can we use AI? How can we use um, predictive use cases and, and understand what people actually use every day the most of? The rest is always there, but it's just kind of pushed away. Right. Cool. I look forward to doing donuts in it uh, <laughs> on the green in 20 minutes. Uh, <laughs> totally kidding. I think we are out of time, right? Yeah, we are out of time. Thank you guys so much for coming in. Thank you. Um, we look forward to spending a little more time in it uh, in the car. And um, guys, everyone enjoy the rest of the Amelia for the weekend. Hopefully it stays dry for us. And we're going to uh, head on out. Until next week.